Good morning. I'm Brian. I see you forgot that this is the time of year they let me preach. I'm excited to share with you this this morning, though. Um, Dan asked me to preach on a turning point, a verse or a passage of Scripture that as the Holy Spirit took it and the living Word of God and worked it into my life, that it changed me, that I was different, and because of that, my life was different. And it's been good for me the last couple weeks to re-look at these verses and have them re-change me again. And my prayer this morning is that this will also become a turning point in your life. But that's not going to happen if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in power here this morning, will it? Without the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, these are just words. So we need to pray, plus I'm scared. And looking out there, some of you look scared. So let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we come before you, Lord, desperately needing you. Desperately needing your help. We need you to work with power and change us. Lord, send your spirit to hover over this tangled mess of humanity and make us look more like Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray these things. Amen. How many of you have been sucked in to that alternate reality called Facebook? How many of you have a Facebook page? Be honest, not a trap. I signed up for Facebook. And I did for two reasons. First, I'm getting older. And I didn't want to be one of those old guys that technology had just passed him by. You know, my parents had one of those VCRs that flashed 12 for years because they couldn't set the clock. I didn't want to be him. Plus, everybody I knew was getting a Facebook page, and I didn't want to be left out. So I signed up for Facebook. Well, actually, my daughter signed me up for Facebook, but I have one. And the first thing you notice when you get on Facebook is you need friends. Now, those of you that don't have Facebook, consider yourself blessed. And Facebook is the social networking platform on the Internet. It's a way for you to make contact and relate with your friends. But when you get on, at first, you don't have friends signed up to be your friends, so you have to get friends. So my daughters were gracious to me and suggested some friends for me, and I went looking for some friends, and pretty soon your friend list starts to grow. You know, start with two and four and six and ten, and and I can remember I had 12 friends. I can remember getting up in the morning and logging on the computer and say, I'm going to check to see what my 12 friends are doing. And I check on all 12 of them, and I said, this is kind of fun. And then your friend list grows, and pretty soon you have 15 and 20 and 25 and 30 friends. I can remember logging on going, 30 people. This is a lot of work. I'm not checking on these guys. They don't do anything. And then it happens. The friend explosion. 
Pretty soon I'm getting friend requests from elementary and junior high kids, from friends of friends, from people I don't even know. And at first you're very discriminating. You're looking at the friends list and you go, oh, you know, should they be my friend? After a while you're just going, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. And everybody becomes your friend. I have friends, I don't even know who they are. Adam was telling me that he got a he got an email or a friend request from someone from junior high they hadn't seen in years and years. He said, oh, yeah, okay, I'll sign him up. And he sent him a, a message saying, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you forever. And he got no reply. Because the goal of Facebook is to have friends, as many friends as you can. Some of you have 50, 100, 150, 200 or more friends signed up. But the goal of Facebook is to have friends, not necessarily be friends. The goal of Facebook is to have friends, not be friends. The next thing I noticed was profiles. Now, a profile is the stuff you put out about yourself. And whenever you're involved in a a situation where it's a very surface-level interaction, you can make your profile say pretty much anything you want it to. And I noticed profiles, you know, profiles were looking quite like the people I knew. It's like an online dating service. You know, when you fill out that form on online dating, you don't put, I tend to get large zits on my nose. I drool when I sleep and I'm afraid of the dark. You say, I'm quirky in a charming type of way. I'm not hung up on superficial looks. And I love adventure, especially on a bright day. And you put out the good stuff. And I was reading things like, you know, I love danger and adventure. And then you realize that this is a person that sits in front of their computer six hours a day on Facebook. And people will put all kinds of details about their life on their Facebook profile, like what they're doing every second of every day. You can call my house and say, where's your wife Debbie? And I'll probably go, I don't know. But Patsy, she's at the gym for the next hour. And then she's going to go home, play with the dog, take a bath, and read a book. Because everything that we do, we tend to put on Facebook so people will know. I got this request one day. It said, your friend has a request. And so I said, oh, somebody needs something. I better log on. So I logged on, and sure enough, I had a friend that wanted to know something. My friend wanted to know, what Pokemon are you? What does that even mean? What Pokemon am I? And sure enough, Facebook has this mechanism so that you can get to know yourself and thus everybody else can get to know you better. And it's a a whole series of quizzes you can take and you answer questions about yourself and then they come back with something about you. And you can share that with all your friends. Like, what Pokemon are you? What breed of dog would you be? How long would you last with Chuck Norris? (laughs) And what's your Native American Indian name? Well, I, let's see, I'm Tangalug Corgi 32-second moonwalker. Don't you feel like you really know me now? 
There's other weird things on Facebook, too. I've been kidnapped, headbutted, and livestock thrown at me. All in cyberspace, of course. But my favorite part of Facebook came one day when I got a request from a friend that said, support my cause. Keep God in school. I thought, ah, here's something serious. I'll have to think about that. I'll have to think about what my commitment to that is and how I would support that. And then while I was thinking about that, I got other requests. Keep God in schools. uh, Eradicate cancer. Cause world peace. Stop global warming. All kinds of requests to support their cause. And after a while, you, you, you don't want to seem like you don't care about anything. So I picked one. I said, oh, I should reply to something. So I clicked. Keep God in schools. Accept. And as I clicked, I was thinking, I wonder what we're going to do. I wonder when we're going to meet. Do we go to PTA meetings? Do we write our congressmen? What are they going to require of me? And immediately the answer popped up. It said, thank you for your support of keeping God in schools. Your support has been greatly appreciated. And I learned that I can be a staunch supporter of any noble cause in the universe with this. And that's all that's required of me. Because Facebook is predicated on the idea of 30-second interactions. 30-second conversations, 30-second relationships, 30-second support. And I thought about that. And you know, Facebook is very, very popular. And it is because that's who our society has become. We've become a society that has a thousand things going on and we run from 30-second commitment to 30-second commitment to 30-second commitment. And then I thought about that and I thought, how sad that the church in America is also becoming that. Jesus Christ found me and saved me when I was in high school. And I went to the church right across the street from the school, and it was a church that didn't require much of you. If you showed up all the time, were enthusiastic, and actually did your Bible study, you were a star. And if you did that for long enough, they made you teach. And then God one day, in his providence, moved us from there to a small country town where we visited a small country church And I I believe it was the very next day the pastor came to visit us. And as I was sharing with him all the things I'd done for the kingdom and all the things I was going to do when I got around to it, he just sat there and listened. And then finally he looked at me and said, you don't get it yet, do you? Now, I was taken back by that because no one had ever challenged me or criticized me before. After all, I was a star. And then he asked me a question. I'm going to ask you that question this morning. He said, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is bad, 10 is best. What value would you give your walk with Christ? So, mentally right now in your mind, on a scale of 1 to 10, 
One is bad, 10 is best. Assign a value, a number, where you would plot your spiritual walk. And I can remember thinking about that. New pastor in your living room, you don't want to look dumb. I can remember thinking, okay, six and three quarters. Because that's better than average. And I knew seven was not truthful. So six and three quarters. And I can remember sitting back and looking at that and being proud. Six and three quarters. That's pretty good. And he said, let me share a verse with you. And he turned to Revelation 3 and started reading in verse 14. This is Jesus Christ talking to the church in Laodicea. And he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. When I read that verse, I realized for the very first time in my life, I had not given God my all. That I was lukewarm. That six and three quarters was not a good number. And that God does not call us to a Facebook relationship with Him. And I can remember looking at that verse and thinking, you're neither cold nor hot, but you're lukewarm. And that's bad. And I've looked that up and and there's a little debate over what that means. But all I know is that if my life discussed God to the point, and I like the King James, where it says he's going to spew me out of his mouth. That's not a good thing. It's not a place I want to be. And I thought, but wait, six and three quarters, that's better than cold, isn't it? And as I thought about that, I've realized that the cold and the hot, they know who they are. The hot, they're walking with God, right? They're laying their life down. They're walking with God day by day, and they know it. And the cold, they are not, and they know it. But it's the warm. It's the warm that think they are walking with God well, and they're not. The cold, the world sees them, and they're not relating with Christ at all. The hot, the world sees them, and they say, we may not agree with what you do or what you believe, but there's something real there. The warm are saying, I know Jesus, 
And then you look at their life and it's no different. And the world goes, eh, don't need that. Reminds me of that verse in Matthew where Jesus is separating out the sheep from the goats. And he said there are going to be many, many, a long line of people that say, wait, 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 Lord. We came to church every Sunday and more than that, we prophesied and did miracles in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you evil one. I don't even know you. My friend Mike Rohr put, put it the best way. He said, God calls us to be all in. The question this morning is, are you all in? What was your number? Let me read a couple quotes from Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. Good book, I recommend it. He has a chapter called Profile of the Lukewarm. And this is what he says. He says, I quickly found that the American church is a difficult place to fit in if you want to live out New Testament Christianity. The goals of American Christianity are often a nice marriage, children who don't swear, and good church attendance. Taking the words of Christ literally and seriously is rarely considered. That's for the radicals who are unbalanced or who go overboard. Most of us want a balanced life that we can control, that is safe, and that does not involve suffering. Then he says, lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of his followers. Are you all in? That pastor then took me and taught me Galatians 2.20. And he said, let me show you what it's supposed to look like. And this is Paul answering the question, where are you on that scale? This is Paul answering the question, where are you? Where's your walk with Christ? And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Let me repeat that. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul answers the question by saying, I'm all in. I'm all in to the point that my life doesn't matter. Only Christ living in me. That's all that matters. Elsewhere he says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. These are not isolated verses. Jesus said, if you want to find life, you have to lose it first. He says, you have to die to self. You have to die to the flesh. And if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, which is your instrument of death. Lay your life down. Then you can follow me. 
The question this morning, the question I've wrestled with over the last couple of weeks, again, is are we all in? Are you all in at work or school? When you go there every day, do you go there thinking, this isn't about me. I've died and Christ lives. This is about him. And do I go here every day to represent him to the world, to bring glory to his name? Or our time, do we still spend hours and hours and hours doing things that don't matter at all? Or is our time all in? Is our time for the glory of God and the kingdom? Or our possessions? The house, the car, the tools, the stuff. Notice I didn't say your house, your car, your tools. You're dead. You don't own anything. These belong to Christ. Are they all in? Are they up for his use? I struggle with this. I don't know about you guys. I don't have this down. When somebody breaks something of mine, I get all miffed. Worked hard for that. Picked it out. Bought it. I love this thing. It's been in the closet for eight years. I don't even know where it was. But... Right? I struggle with that. But it has to be all in. And then the hard one, our money. Are we, or let me repeat, let me correct that, God's money. Are we using God's money for His purposes? Is it all in? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Twice I've had college and career adults come to me and say, you know, I'm reading through the New Testament. I'm looking at what the church looks like. And my question is, how come it doesn't look like that anymore? And I have to answer, it does. Just not so much here. Here in pockets. But elsewhere in the world, the church looks like that. And it's because it doesn't cost us anything to say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Where elsewhere in the world to say those words, I believe in Jesus, could cost you your family, your possessions, or even your life. There was an article in yesterday's Daily Republic about a North Korean woman that was just executed in the public square for giving away Bibles. She's all in. And I dare say... There's not many lukewarm in North Korea. One of the, the kids described it this way. He said, it's, it's almost like we're subcontractors to God. You know, a subcontractor is someone that decides what jobs he wants to do, puts himself under the authority of the contractor, but still is a separate entity and has control. We're not called to be subcontractors to God. He doesn't need us. We're called to be bond slaves 
A slave is someone who has absolutely no control over their life. They do what the master says. They go and live where the master tells them to live. And everything they do and earn and make belongs to their master. And a bond slave is someone that bonds himself to the master voluntarily. Are you all in? Let me read another quote from Francis Chan. He says, Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life figured and mapped out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full, and for the most part, they are in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. Would our lives look drastically different if we stopped believing in God? Are we all in? And usually our tendency is when somebody gets convicted... And God's calling them to do radical things. We want to rescue them from that, don't we? We want to say, no, no, you're okay. You're doing good. Shouldn't feel bad about that. God is calling us to be all in. Don't let anybody talk you out of that. We're going to do it a little different this morning. The worship team is going to come up. They're going to um, play a song, and we're going to sing some praise to God. While they're singing praise to God, I want you to think about what we've talked about this morning. Where were you on that line of 1 to 10? And where you are with Him, are you all in? And then when they're done with this song, I'm going to come back, and we're going to, Finish this. Praise God for His mercy and His grace. The song we sang earlier today said He allows us to lay it all down again. Some of you are going to hear this and you're going to just go about your lives. And Some of you are going to hear this and you're going to say, I need to get busy for God. This isn't a call to get busy. I'm not looking for volunteers. This is a call to surrender everything. And in most cases, that means to get less busy. Less busy with the things that don't matter. Busy doing the things God has called us to. And some of you are going to hear this and say, but isn't this really for pastors and theologians and missionaries? Because I don't have that much to offer. And I'm here this morning to tell you, you're right. You don't have that much to offer. And neither do pastors and theologians and missionaries. God is in the business of taking 
the little bit of scraps of life that we have and doing amazing things with them. And I believe that if somebody can say it better than me, we should let them. So I'm going to read from you to you. Maybe. From a book by John Ortberg called The Life You've Always Wanted. And this illustrates what we've been talking about this morning better than I ever could. So listen to this story. Then I'm going to pray and we're going to be dismissed. It can be helpful to see how God brings about transformation in the lives of ordinary people. So I would like to introduce to you up to a friend of a friend of mine. Her name is Mabel. This is what my friend Tom Schmidt wrote. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropping one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. Can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That's when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. 
Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950, when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker, with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offering of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often, when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words to the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines and certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper and write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten different directions all at once with all the things I had to think about. The question occurred to me, What does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, oh, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, What do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awful good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much of what I think. Lots of folks would think that I'm kind of old-fashioned. But I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad, I go to to him I go. No, uh, No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And there she lay and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. 
laying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Here was an ordinary human, an ordinary human being, who received supernatural power to do extraordinary things. Her entire life consisted of following Jesus as best she could in her situation. Patient endurance of suffering, solitude, prayer, meditation on scripture, worship, fellowship when it was possible, giving when she had a flower or a piece of candy to offer. Imagine being in her condition and saying, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awful good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. This is the 23rd Psalm come to life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. For anyone who really saw Mabel, who was willing to turn aside, a hospital bed became a burning bush, a place where this ordinary and pain-filled world was visited by the presence of God. When others saw the life in that hospital bed, they wanted to take off their shoes. The lid was off the terrarium. Then the turn came with a catch of the breath and a beating of the heart in tears. They were standing on holy ground. Do you believe such a life is possible for an ordinary human being? Do you believe it is possible for you? This is promised in the gospel, the good news proclaimed by Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news, as Jesus preached it, is that now it is possible for ordinary men and women to live in the presence and under the power of God. The good news, as Jesus preached it, is not about the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. It's about the glorious redemption of human life. Your life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you even take notice of us. And yet, Lord, you gave your all, your Son, for our sins. Father, we praise you that you love us. And we desperately need your power. Father, I need to give up those things I've been clutching in my fist. I need to be all in. You've been awful good to me. I need to be mostly satisfied. Father, thank you for your son, for your love. And Father, my prayer is that this body of believers will be all in and this place will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen.